This is Mr. Gleason here. We're doing our first podcast. This is podcast 1.1, of course. And we will be talking today about Newton's Laws and the center of mass. So first of all, let's talk about the history a little bit. Back in um, ancient Greek times, um, Aristotle, one of the great Greek thinkers, uh, believed in uh, uh, two types of motion. And one of those types was natural and the other type was violent. The natural motion, uh, according to Aristotle, was a straight up and down motion. In other words, some things rose like smoke and fire, and then some things would fall down like rocks. So that was natural. They did those on their own without any help from anybody. So something was up, it'd fall down, and like I said, with the smoke or something like that, or a balloon would go up. Aristotle also said that natural motion was a planetary motion too because it was natural, it happened based on uh, natural occurrences. Violent motion was a side-to-side motion. In other words, if you wanted to get something to go from one side to another, then it was violent because it required a force to keep it moving. So this is where we first start talking about forces. We start talking about forces with Aristotle, and we talk about it just in terms of violent motion. If you want something to go from side to side, you have to apply the force. Well, that theory actually stayed in existence and was accepted um, until a couple people, Copernicus and Galileo, first started uh, inputting on their research on what actually happened. And Copernicus brought about his laws and his uh, concept of planetary motion. Before then, the Earth was the center of the universe and everything revolved around it, but based on Copernicus's data, he started talking about how forces affected different objects, and especially on the planetary level, and um, started turning some of that natural and violent motion theories uh, upside down a little bit. But it really wasn't until Galileo came along that they really started defining in terms of a scientific concept what these objects were or what these forces were. So first of all, uh, Galileo, uh, let's talk about what uh, a force is. Force is defined as a push or a pull. So you can tell that's very easy to define. If I push on something or pull on it, then I'm applying a force, which means I need to make some kind of contact. But that also includes a push or a pull caused by uh, repelling charges or repelling magnetic fields. If you think about magnets, they don't need to touch to push each other apart or pull each other together. Uh, the same thing goes with the planets. There is there are forces between them caused by the interaction caused by the masses of the planets. Right? Um, Galileo explained violent motion and the fact that you needed a force to keep something going by friction which is defined as, again, a force between objects that touch. So they must make contact. And that's, again, reason why the objects need a force to keep moving. Without friction, according to uh, Galileo and current laws, Without friction, an object should keep going forever and ever and ever until it does encounter friction or another outside force. And actually that comes 
uh, into our next slide. Now he also brought up the concept of inertia or the concept of inertia was brought up and that is the property of a body to resist changes in motion. Again, an object will keep doing what it's doing until there's something that makes it stop. So an object will think about a ball sitting on a table. <coughs> the ball stays where it is until you apply a force that resists that, that resists that constant motion of no motion. Same thing, if we roll a bowling ball down um, a lane, if we rolled the bowling ball down a lane, that uh, bowling ball would want to keep rolling until you applied an outside force to slow it down or stop it or make it change direction. You could apply a force to make it change direction. Newton took the information before him and put it together and came up with three different laws. The first law, called the law of inertia, uh, basically says an object is going to keep doing what it's doing until there's a net force, a non-zero net force. Which means if I have an object sitting here, it doesn't matter what it's doing, it could be moving one way or another, but if it's sitting there, it's not going to have a, a change in its motion unless I apply a net force. So I could pull it or push it in that direction with, let's say, four newtons of force. We'll define a newton in a minute. Alright, and that would give us a non-zero net force. Now if there was a frictional force of four newtons in the opposite direction, you can see they cancel out and they again have a zero net force, which means we're going to have a uniform speed, which could be a state of rest. If we have a uniform speed of zero, that is uniform. If we have a uniform speed of two, that is uniform. So if we have no outside forces, the object keeps doing what it's doing. So let's define a few things here that we need to know. First of all, mass. Mass is defined or is a measure of inertia. It really is not a definition to say it's a measure of inertia. If you want to define it, it's the amount of material in the object. So mass defines how much it resists to change. So if we have more mass, a more massive object is going to have a bigger resistance to change. A small tennis ball has very little inertia compared to a very large bowling ball, a very heavy bowling ball. All right? And along the same lines, the tennis ball will have much less amount of material in it than the bowling ball. Now if you want to compare two objects at the same size, you could take um, a tennis ball and you could take a lacrosse ball or a baseball, which are all about the same size, and compare them and notice that they have different masses, which means they have different resistance to change, but just because they have different resistance to change doesn't mean they have different sizes, but they will have different amounts of material. Now we generally talk about mass here on Earth 
in terms of weight, but weight has a definition of its own. It's a force of gravity acting on a mass. So an object with more mass will weigh more in the same place, but we don't want to confuse the terms mass and weight where mass really is a measure of how much is in that object and weight is a measure of the force of gravity on that mass. Now Newton is a way of measuring weight. It's actually the unit of force. Now we generally in America talk about weight in terms of pounds and so that is a force. Now in European countries they, they will measure your mass. They will tell you what your mass is. You may have a mass of 65 kilograms but it's incorrect to say that is your weight because if we were talking about kilograms then we can find your weight in Newtons abbreviated capital N by just doing a simple calculation and we'll get to that soon. Alright last definition net force very simply is the sum of all forces on an object. Alright, which means if we have a f two or three people pulling in the same direction, it's very easy we can just add those up. But as we saw in the previous slide, if they're going opposite directions, we'd have to subtract them, which would be summing them. It's just you have one that's positive, one that's negative. Same thing if we had one pulling up and one pulling to the side, then it wouldn't necessarily mean that the net force is just sum of these two arrows. If this is a three and this is a four, those of you who are very good at geometry will know that the sum of those forces is five. We will get into that very soon. Now let's talk about net forces and do a couple quick examples. Make sure you write these down. Remember anytime we do an example you want to write down everything I do. So here problem, the problem is Arnold Schwarzenegger is moving out of the mansion. Uh, he's pushing a box of books across the floor. So re regardless of what it is, I'm always going to draw a very simple box because any detailed drawings really are going to be a waste of time. So we have a box of books being pushed with a force of 50 newtons to the right. Okay, The frictional force opposes its push with the force of 30 newtons and since it opposes his push it's going to be in the opposite direction. Alright, very simply we have 50 one way and 30 to the other so if we're going to think about that in terms of summing them it's 50 plus a negative 30, which gives us 20 newtons. Alright, with your answers, make sure that you give me a number, which you see here, and a unit, which you see here. I don't want to see a number without a unit on it. In the case of this example, we have a direction. So we can write the word to the right, or we can use an arrow to designate the direction of motion. Uh, but this way, we can say that the net force, force net, equals 20 newtons, 20 newtons to the right. All right. 
That is a good answer right there because it tells me exactly what I'm talking about and it shows me everything including the direction because in this case we had a direction as an example. Another example, Nemo is trying to swim upstream to be found. Again, he's lost in the ocean, I guess. He pushes forward. All right, now here's Nemo. Again, use a box. He pushes forward with a force of two newtons. The stream pushes him back with a force of two newtons. It's pretty easy to see what's going on here. Two newtons plus a negative two newtons is going to give you a net force of zero newtons. And just like you learned in math, zero has no positive or negative, which means this can have no direction. The net force is zero newtons. Does this mean he's not moving? Not necessarily true. With a net force of, two, of zero newtons, if he already had motion, then he wouldn't be uh, changing that motion. Of course, if he tried to move from a standstill, he wouldn't be able to change that motion either. Another example, James Bond has a weight of 1,700 newtons. We know weight is a downward force, 1,700 newtons. He skydives out of the plane to evade the nuclear bombs heading for his airplane. The air resistance pushes back on him, so it must oppose the force that we already know of weight with a force of 700 newtons. So if he has a weight of 1700 newtons and we add that to a negative 700 newtons, you're going to find that the net force is 1000 newtons and we know that's going to be in a downward direction because looking at my example, there's 700 up, 1700 down. So that must give us a net force in the downward direction. Another example, I'm on a uh, very massive airplane to Chicago. There's the airplane. Now 2,000 Newton, 200,000 Newtons is a measure of weight, which is down. The plane's engines provide a combined forward thrust of 50,000 Newtons while the wings provide a lifting force of 200,000 newtons. And the air resistance, air resistance goes against forward motion of 50,000 newtons. Now I don't need to work this problem out to see that the 200,000 newtons and 200,000 newtons are going to cancel out and the 50,000 newtons and the 50,000 newtons are going to cancel out. That means the net force is going to be zero newtons. Again, the, the airplane is flying through the air, which means it does have a velocity, but there is no net force, which means it's not going to change its velocity. Now let's look at some examples real quick of Newton's first law. We can have an object at rest, and maybe we have a object sitting on a table and in that table we have a weight pulling down and then you have something called the normal force which is the force of the table pushing up on the box and that would be opposing that is perpendicular to the surface okay so if you were on a slant 
weight would still go directly down. Let's say we put a box right here. Weight would still pull straight down, but in this case, perpendicular, the normal force would be up like that. So now we're starting to look at angles. But we're not going to do that right now. All right, normal force is straight up, weight is straight down in the example I'm doing right here. All right, because the object is sitting on a table, the normal force and the weight cancel out. That gives me a normal or a net force of zero newtons. The object stays at rest. If we just put a box out in outer space, away from all the planets and all the suns and all the galaxies, there are no forces acting on that box at all, which means the net force is zero. So even though the object has a weight, which is caused by gravity, in this example over here, we have a normal force counteracting that, which gives us a net force of zero. Over here, no forces at all, net force is zero. Now, let's throw something on Earth. And here's the curve of the Earth. All right. Here I am. Get a little bit of drawing going on now. All right, and I throw a football. Now, if there was no gravity, an object's going to keep doing what it's doing. It would follow a straight line. That's not a very good straight line, but it would follow a straight line right into outer space and just keep going on forever. But we know there is a force of gravity acting on that object. So if I throw a football, it's probably going to end up, there's a really good drawing of a football, it's going to end up following a path like this, it's going to change its motion in the direction of the net force. Once it leaves my hand, the only force acting on that football is gravity. I can't change the football's motion once it leaves my hand. So the only force is acting on that ball. The only force is gravity. Okay, so it follows that curved path in the direction, that change of motion is in the direction of the net force. Again, if we're in outer space and I throw that football, it's just going to keep going forever and ever and ever and follow that straight line path until it runs into another planet or is affected by another planet's gravity. All right, now let's think about riding on an airplane. If you're in an airplane, if you've ever ridden in an airplane, you know that once you're out in the air and you're moving at a constant speed, the only reason, re excuse me, the only way you know that you're moving is that you can hear the engines and you could look out and maybe see the uh, clouds going by. Otherwise, it seems like you're not really moving at all. And that's because you must, if you're moving at a constant speed, have a net force of zero. Well, we know planes have weight. We've already seen this example, all right, caused by gravity. But that plane also must have a lift to keep it up in the air, caused by the wings. Okay, the forces balance out. Okay? So if we're thinking about that, and you're sitting in the airplane, and you throw a penny straight up, on the airplane, it's going to fall straight down. Just like if you were sitting at your desk at school and you threw the pencil up 
or threw a penny up and it went straight up and it would fall straight back down. Now, if someone could see you in that plane flying by and watch the flight or the path of that penny as you threw it up and it followed an up-down motion, they would see the penny follow this kind of a path if they could see the penny in the airplane the whole time. That's because as you move with the penny and the plane moves with the penny, that penny's got to travel forward. It already has a forward inertia brought to it or given to it by the airplane and you felt the force giving it that inertia and giving you that inertia during takeoff. Alright, let's move on to Newton's second law. Newton's second law is very simply, it's got a lot of words, but very simple when you look at it in terms of what it actually says. Newton's second law says that the acceleration produced by a net force on an object is directly proportional to the magnitude of the net force, is in the same direction as the net force, and is inversely proportional to the mass of the object. What does that mean? If you put a net force on an object, the more force you apply, the greater the acceleration. Whatever direction the force is applied would be the direction of the acceleration, and the more mass of the object, the less the acceleration. Well, that's a whole lot to worry about in terms of memorization. So, instead of that, there's an equation. What that says is that the acceleration is proportional to the different or the pro the quotient of the net force and the mass. In equation form, if we give it the proper units, acceleration is equal to net force over mass when acceleration is in meters per second squared, net force is in newtons, and mass is in kilograms. Now, I usually write it as F equals MA. I like linear equations, and it's much easier to work in that manner. But this A equals F over M is also is really an accepted version of that and is really the way Newton's second law explains it. So let's look at an example. A car has a mass of 1,000 kilograms. We can see that in the problem. What is the acceleration produced by a force of 2,000 newtons? So we've got our information provided to us. We know we're looking for acceleration, so I'm going to use the form A equals F over M, and I just plug the numbers in. At this point, it's a plug and chug problem. And very simply, I can plug that into my calculator if I can't do that division by myself, and I get 2. Now, we just learned that the acceleration is meters per second squared. Next example. We have the same 1,000 kilogram car, and we have a force now. Alright, so our mass is 1,000 kilograms, our force is 4,000 newtons. Again, we're going to plug it in, we're solving for acceleration, so it's force over mass, and we just plug the numbers in. Notice I always show my units. And I'm going to get that the acceleration, in this case, is 4 meters per second squared. Again, learn what the units are so that you can just plug those in where they belong.
Another acceleration, uh, another Newton's second law problem. This time we're given that a car can accelerate at two meters per second squared. What acceleration can it attain if it is towing another car of equal mass? Well, its acceleration is two meters per second when its mass is one car. I know it's not a proper unit, but we can use that information to help us solve this problem. All right, you don't always need exact data in order to solve a problem. So we can see that we got this information, and I'm going to solve using F equals MA for the force, and I have one car times two meters per second squared, and I get that the force for of acceleration, or the force provided by the car, is two whatever units that would be. In this case, I don't really have a unit. All right, that does not answer the question. We want to know the acceleration where that force is now two units. And of course now the mass is going to be two because you have one car towing another car. And again, note that I don't, need, don't really have proper units, but it will still work out that my acceleration is in meters per second squared because it was to start with. So I plug this in again to the same equation. I get 2 over 2, and I get that the acceleration is going to be divided by 2. Think about it. Does it make sense? Yes, it does, because with one car, the acceleration is 2. So the acceleration with two cars must be 1. Twice the mass gives us half the acceleration for the same force. Now let's talk about free fall. Free fall explains basically objects that are falling to earth and if you assume that there is no wind resistance, all objects should fall to the earth at the same rate. It is a constant rate of 9.81 meters per second squared. All right, And what this means is if it's constant, we should always get the same answer if we take a force divided by mass. So what that means, if the force is 2 newtons, the mass would have to be in this case, maybe two kilograms. Or, let's use a different example. I like this one better. If this is two over one, then it's the same thing as 200 over 100. So, even though the numbers, the forces are not the same, because the masses are not the same, the acceleration stays the same. The answer here in this problem would be two, and the answer here in this problem would be two. So that is an inequality. All right, and Galileo was one of the first to discover that A is a constant. Before him, there really wasn't much information about this, uh, but he didn't really have a reason why. So there really was no reason why. All right, but he did find out, or we did find out eventually, that weight is nice and easy to figure out. Weight is equal to mass times the acceleration due to the gravity, which is the 9.8 meters per second squared, which means if we know the mass of an object, we can easily find its weight, and if we know the weight, we can easily find its mass. All right, now we didn't know the why when we were talking about with Galileo, but Newton brought it about that we could figure out exactly why, and his law of gravitation, which you see down there at the bottom of the slide, explains that to us, where the force times the mass, or you have a force and a mass, and a force and a mass 
for another object, the forces of between the two objects are equal, okay? And it's based upon a constant g, the product of the masses, mass one times mass two, divided by the radius squared, the distance between the objects squared. This also means that the forces, again, are equal. So the force of the Earth pulling you down to it is the same as you pulling the Earth up to you. Again, go back to our example. They are the same forces. Okay, in this case, they are the same forces. All right, but you have a very little mass, and the Earth has a very large mass. <clears throat> which means this is going to be greater than the acceleration <coughs> excuse me of the earth the acceleration on you is greater than the acceleration on the earth the acceleration of the earth is going to kind of depend on what the object is but the acceleration due to the object or on the object is always at constant 9.81 meters per second squared so this answer is always 9.81 so then this answer over here is going to be a little bit different. All right. Now here's an example of a free fall problem. What is the mass of a 1,000 Newton object? And we know that free fall uses the equation weight is mass times gravity. Now I'm going to use the gravity is equal to 10 meters per second squared just to keep my math here simple but when you do a calculation, I want you to use the 9.1 meters per second squared. Now, what is the mass of a 1,000 Newton object? That is the weight, so I'm going to plug that in. We are looking for mass, and I'm going to use 10 meters per second squared for the gravity. Now, as you can tell, I just plug the numbers into the equation and do the algebra after. If you wanted to solve this by solving for the mass first, You'd, of course, solve m equals w over g, and then plug the numbers in. Well, you're still going to see the same thing when I divide both sides by the 10 meters per second squared. And that would cancel out. And you can see that I have the weight over acceleration due to gravity. And, of course, 1,000 divided by 10 is 100 kilograms. All right, next example. Weight of a 1,000 kilogram object. Now we're solving for W. We're solving for a different variable, so I'm probably not going to get the same answer. 1,000 kilograms times acceleration due to gravity. Again, I'm using 10. You'd always use 9.81. I solve this out, I get 10,000 newtons. Okay, so make sure you plug the numbers in right. It's not always about whether I divide or add, it's always just whatever it is. Alright, now, Newton's third law, whenever one object exerts a force on a second object, the second object exerts an equal and opposite force on the first. Alright, we're going to define some words to help us figure that out. Alright, so we've defined Newton's third law. So let's define a few parts of Newton's third law. First of all, we talk about an action and reaction force. An action force is really the cause of the interaction and the reaction force is the effect. Now it doesn't really matter 
which one is which, as long as you always have a pair of forces. Now we can use Newton's second law with Newton's third law. Let's talk about, for instance, jumping up in terms of if you're just jumping on the ground. So you have a force on the person that the earth pushes you up, causing a change of motion, and you apply a force on the earth, pushing the earth down. But again, using the same example we used before, the person has a very small mass, but the earth has a very large mass, which means that with a very small mass, you have a very large acceleration and a very small acceleration on the earth. Same force, different masses, different accelerations. So again, Newton's third law talks about an action and a reaction. So the person is pushing on the earth and the earth is pushing on the person. We have an action and a reaction. So let's look at some examples. Punching a wall. Your fist is hitting the wall. And since your fist hit the wall, the reaction would be the wall hitting the fist. Example of billiard balls. The cue ball would strike the eight ball. So then the eight ball would put a force on the cue ball, so that would be an action and a reaction. Right? If it's a perfect collision, the speed would be the same. The, the cue ball would roll and strike the eight where it would come to a stop, and then the eight should go off at the same speed that the cue ball had. Of course, if you have trick shots or rotations, then that would change that. All right, another example, walking. Because you move that way, the floor would move that way. You, the floor pushes you forward, and you push the floor backwards. Now, what does that mean? That means if everyone walked the same direction on Earth, and all started at the same time, they should apply a big enough force that we would actually measure that change in uh, speed of the Earth's rotation. But as soon as we changed our speed, that would be canceled back out. Alright, let's look at a rocket ship in outer space. What does that push on? Well, if we have a rocket ship, there's our rocket ship. Alright, the rocket ship must move forward, so it's going to have something that's pushing it backwards. It's not pushing on anything because there's no gas back there. There's no ground to push on. Well you know that there is exhaust that comes out the back of a jet. And that would be your action-reaction. The rocket will push the gas back and the gas is going to push the rocket forward. Another example, dropping a ball from a tower. When that ball strikes the ground because it's a change in motion, there must be a force. The ground pushes the ball up, the ball pushes the ground down. 
And of course, if you have a soft ground, you can definitely see that effect because it'll leave an indentation. All right, let's look at some systems to help explain this. Let's say we have colliding balls. If we look at a ball moving along before a collision in that direction, before the collision, it might have a speed of two meters per second. Then it's going to collide with whatever it is colliding with, probably another ball. And then after the collision, it's just sitting there not moving, so it has a velocity of zero. We have a change in speed, so that means we must have a net force, which means there must be an acceleration. And in the case of this acceleration, even though the ball was moving to the right, the force is to the left, and the acceleration is to the left to give it a zero velocity. Alright, so we have a net force, we have an acceleration. If we look at the other ball, it starts off just sitting there on the table with no speed. It collides when the other ball strikes it. There must be a net force in that direction, which means after the collision, if we're talking about equal mass balls, it probably have a velocity of 2 meters per second squared, or 2 meters per second, sorry, which means we have a net force and there's an acceleration in to give us a positive speed up. Okay, notice that this acceleration is, since we're talking the same masses, it's the same force opposite directions, so we do follow Newton's third law. And again, we have net force giving us an acceleration on a mass, which follows Newton's second law. Now, if we look at both balls at the same time, you have one moving at two meters per second, and you have another ball sitting there with no speed. They'll collide, and again you have a force in one direction, force in another, that should give you a net force in the system of zero newtons. And then afterwards, the ball that was moving is stationary, and the other ball is now moving at two meters per second. Alright, so we started out with a combined speed of 2 meters per second, and we finished with a combined speed of 2 meters per second. We have zero net force. No net force means no acceleration. Now, if these balls had different masses from each other, then that might change. But because there's no net force, there's no acceleration or no change of momentum in the system. Alright, really quickly, we're going to talk about center of mass to finish off this point of uh, this podcast. Center, center of mass is defined as the point located at object's average position of mass, which means if all the mass is evenly distributed, it's probably somewhere in the center. But if you have something where the mass is not evenly distributed, it might be in a different place. If you want to locate the center of mass, there's a few different ways you can do that. You can spin the object, and whatever point does not change is your spin point. That would be your center of mass. You can also hang by three points. And in your lab, you should have already done that. If you have not done that lab yet, lab three, then you will see how this works. 
And you lay out by three points, and you hang the object by those three points, and wherever the a center line straight down passes and meets, that would be your center of mass. So real quick, some center of masses for objects. If you have a baseball, that's easy. It's evenly distributed right in the middle. If you have a bat, exaggerated in terms of the size, but you can see that it's thicker at the end, so the center of mass is somewhere towards the outside. You want to hit the ball at that, that's called the sweet spot. If you have a triangle, then it's at a point that's exactly one-third the height, as long as it's evenly distributed mass. If you have a solid cone, it's not very high at all. It's one-fourth the height in a cone. Now let's look at a bucket. This be a cross view of the bucket. That center of mass may be somewhere around here. Somewhere where there's empty space. It is possible that the center of mass of an object is located where there is no actual mass. So you can keep that in mind. And again, when you do the lab, if you have not already, you should notice that the center of mass of one of the objects is located in an empty space. This concludes the podcast. See you for 1.2.